0: This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our returning celebrity guest scorer, my brother-in-law, Keith
1: Techmeyer. Hi. Welcome back. Happy to be back again, and uh, I haven't seen this movie in a really, really, really long time. I don't know why it always escaped me. Like a lot of John Wayne movies, I sometimes when I see a title I confuse it with another one of his movies. I think he's he's made like seven, eight, nine movies. I don't quite remember, but I uh I confuse them sometimes. So when I fired this up and rewatched it, I thought, Oh, boy yeah, this is uh this is Benjamin. This is from the forties, so this is this is one of his earlier post-war movies,
0: yes Yes, absolutely and it is this year the i'm trying to do the math in my head here 75th 85th or no you're right 75th yeah
2: for once you needed help with the math
0: yeah well tonight as we mentioned just a second ago for our 163rd episode we discussed the 1948 western red river directed by Howard Hawks, screenplay by Borden Chase and Charles Schnee, starring John Wayne as Thomas Dunson, Montgomery Clift as Matthew Matt Garth, Walter Brennan as Nadine Groot, Joanne Drew as Tess Millay, Colleen Gray as Finn, Harry Carey as Mr. Melville, John Ireland as Cherry Valance, Noah Barry Jr. as Buster McGee, Harry Carey Jr. as Dan Latimer, Chief Yowlachi as Tuja Kuo, Paul Fix as Tealer Yacy, Hank Warden as Sims Reeves, and Ray Hike as Walt Jurgens. Recognition for this movie? Based on The Chisholm Trail from 1946 in the Saturday Evening Post by Borden Chase, Red River opened on August 26, 1948. While two different cuts of the movie exist, the movie still gained widespread critical acclaim, and would go on to gross roughly $9 million on a budget of $2.7 million, earning it the second-highest gross of 1948, just behind The Snake Pit and just ahead of Key Largo. Roger Ebert has considered Red River one of the greatest Western films of all time. Red River was selected by the American Film Institute as the fifth-greatest Western of all time in the AFI's 10 Top 10 list in 2008. In 1990, Red River was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress. And Red River currently holds a 100% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 96 score on Metacritic, and a 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So let's just start here. What is your relationship to this movie, Dad?
2: This is the second time I've seen the film. Trying to remember, I, wa- I think I watched it for the first time about, um, oh boy, I, I think it was about 12 or 15 years ago. It was just one that I uh, had seen, I think, on um, Turner or on when AMC was still doing old movies, and just thought, well, this might be something
0: interesting to watch, so I watched it.
2: So, not a lot of relationship with it.
0: I think i had only seen it once before and it was kind of during this pandemic period where you had a lot of free space to watch things. And because i had watched through the AFI top 100 from 2008 and 1998 or 2007 and 1998, because this was on the 10 top 10 list, I think I got this one in because I wanted to cross all of those movies off as well. So it's not one that necessarily is far enough away that I'm not unfamiliar with it, but it was one that I enjoyed, particularly because, as I've said before, I really like Montgomery Clift. Keith, you said you've seen this before, but it's been a while?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how many times I've seen it, but, you know, movies, when they would used to play on TV, wouldn't necessarily pay attention to the TV guide. You turn the TV on, and when you do that, You'll see a movie, but you like catch a clip of it here, a little bit of it there. Or a whole movie is playing, but it starts at 9 o'clock, so you're not going to watch the whole thing. So like a lot of John Wayne movies that were constantly on, I would catch snippets here and there. And over the course of a year, I could probably see the whole thing twice in 30-minute segments. But I have sat down and watched it on its own a couple of times last time obviously being uh, yesterday
0: kind of reminds me of the way that dads watched uh, Shawshank Redemption through the years
1: we went and saw it at the theater and
2: we were late because um, we um, had problems with the babysitter getting there on time and so I missed the opening and I never saw the opening until like 10 years later
0: honestly you could probably skip the first 15 minutes of Shawshank and you're just fine well, I did, and
2: I still love the movie, So, but I was kind of surprised there was this whole
0: other part to the film. Well, he has to end up in prison. There's got to be a reason for that. But we're here to discuss a Western called Red River, so... That is well, true. I mean,
1: we can switch if you want. I mean, that's fine.
0: I don't think anybody's going to have too much trouble discussing the other movie, but uh, we, we had a, a dedicated show to one particular So, what is Red River about? Well, it's it's a
2: relationship between a man and his uh, stepson, and the fact that he is driven to accomplish this feat, and he can lose sight of those around him, and to some extent his principles and morality, because he is so focused on achieving his end.
0: Yeah, I think the two things I really took out of this movie are the father-son relationship, especially with how the film ends. But the other part of it that sticks out to me, because we're going to get to this a little later, it reminds me a lot of Mutiny on the Bounty, and there's a reason for that, which I'll get to in the Did You Know section. There's a lot to do with leadership in this movie and particular styles of leadership. One who is a little bit more understanding understands the character of the guys around him, his peers, treats them as peers, and then one who's much more tyrannical and micromanaging. (laughs) Boy,
2: do I have a feeling there's subplot, subtext. To my comment or
1: to the movie? To your comment. (laughs) What I kind of got out of it when I was watching the whole time was uh, this kid shows up, tries to pull one over, but the main character could send him away, but he's he's on this adventure. He's beginning this experience, and he encounters this boy and actively decides that he wants to share in this experience with the kid. He's not doing the kid any favors. In fact, he's kind of got to go out of his way as much as he's going to get the kid to, to do something for him. And um, I think that he wants to begin this journey and start this new life and he has this this kid that he's going to do it with but he wants to keep that uh, that that patriarchal lineal role and then uh, later as it as it moves on he is so bound and determined to maintain his much control over every aspect of the situation that he sees as is, is his like he has all of these cattle, he's embarking on this adventure, and anybody that wants to join him, they're not their employee, uh, they're not his friend, and he is, is, is not going to be their patriarch. He owns them. And he's going to treat them the same way that he's treating the cattle. But basically everybody that's with him is a smarter version of a cow. And it's kind of the opposite of the experience in which Everything was new and everything was fun and everything was an adventure. And this kid came and joined along with him in the experience. And now that he has everything to lose, he 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 changes as a person and becomes this uh this 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 character that's uh so mean that it ends up turning back on him. And then as it resolves, what ends up happening was uh, the The thing that got him going in the first place, and the thing that he person who he was sharing this experience with in the beginning is the one who takes everything from him, but then hands it back to him in the end.
0: You raise a few good points there that I hadn't necessarily considered. One being the nature of Dunson as he starts the movie in creating a fatherly aspect and relationship with Garth as opposed to later on when he's seemingly much more insecure. And maybe you could look at that as a financial aspect of the movie, but I think you could also point at maybe it's the evolution of age. I mean, I've found some bosses not necessarily pointing at any figures in in this podcast per se, but just people in general, as they get older, they tend to become more insecure in their place in the world as they see the inevitability of somebody replacing
1: them as a kid i was farmed off to do a lot of work where i would get i'd get dumped with somewhere with somebody and it was going to be a bunch of manual labor i was going to be building stuff i was going to be digging holes i was going to be doing a whole bunch of things whatever it's fine and i show up and it's come here boy and then by the end of the day they want to sit down with you you know, they're coming out with a, with a glass of lemonade for you or sometimes even a beer and they want to sit down and they want to they want to they, they're they looking at you in a different light. You just matured in a very short span of time because uh, even though you're young, you're a man and you're there to do work and they respect that, especially because you did it with them and for them. And something was made or something happened or progress was achieved by doing that, I mean, it it changes how rough, tough men deal with people. They can they can be the gruffest of human beings, but at the end of the day if they can see that you're willing to sweat, then they're gonna they're gonna treat you differently. And that's what he was doing with this kid. He's like, Hey kid, um uh, you wanna sweat? I don't no know if he thought the kid was eventually gonna take off and run away. And then the kid didn't. So that's, I think that's what really defines the relationship. So one of the
0: primary characteristics about this movie is the presence of Wayne, because just about any movie that John Wayne's in, it's a John Wayne movie. But I find it notable that two of the preeminent directors that he's worked with are Howard Hawks, who he makes another appearance on the show this evening after we discussed a movie of his last week. And the previously discussed John Ford, where we had done the Quiet Man, but we have several other Wayne Ford partnerships. I guess we also discussed Liberty Valance at one point as well. And we did uh, the John Wayne or the John or a Henry Fonda film. Well, we did Mister Roberts, which is a Ford film, but I'm talking specific this partnership. Okay. So I wonder. Now that we've considered at least some, because this is one of two major Westerns that Wayne did with Hawks, and the other one being Rio Bravo, which has been a family favorite of ours for years, do you prefer more of the Ford-stylistic movies with Wayne, specifically like Stagecoach, The Searchers, The Quiet Man, Liberty Valance... Those types of films, or do you prefer Red River and Rio Bravo? And I know there are a couple of others that I, I'm forgetting off the top of my head here. Rio Lobo. Sure. I think Rio Grande might have been one too for one of them. I can't remember which one. Well, I guess for me, it's kind of like
2: picking among your children. I don't want I don't want Sophie's choice. I like each of them for different reasons. I guess if I had to, I would pick Hawks simply because Hawks has a more simple narrative behind the characters. Ford always tries to make Wayne into something bigger than life, whereas Hawks just, he is John Wayne, he is this flawed person, and he's going to do the best he can within these limited circumstances. And so I think that's more realistic so and I think that's one of the reasons why I prefer or why I love Rio Bravo is simply because, I mean, Wayne is doing a job, but he has a lot of risks and a lot of adversity, and he just has to deal with it within the context of what he is. Right down to who's helping him, is that's what he's got, um, is the line, I think, or that's what I've got. I just like the simplicity of Hawks' films with Wayne Moore, I guess.
0: I would tend to agree that the Hawks movies are a lot simpler in their premise and their understanding. I think they can be, therefore, maybe a little bit broader in their appeal and more potentially entertaining. The Ford versions, especially the late 50s, early 60s, kind of beginning with The Searchers and Liberty Valance and the like, are much more layered movies that require multiple viewings to kind of glean a lot of what they're about out of them. And so if you're just asking from an entertainment standpoint, as much as I love Liberty Valance, I think
1: I would probably prefer Rio Bravo. I'm going to go with Hawks as well. Uh, I don't have much to say there's some tropes that exist that we'll, we'll get to a little bit later that are a bit more prevalent in, in, in the, the Ford movies, but also for all the other reasons that you two have already stated. Fair enough. And dad,
0: just because he's come up on multiple occasions before. And recently we learned that he's one of the, I think three people to win three different Academy awards as an actor, all as supporting actor. Where does Walter Brennan rank among the all time supporting actors?
2: He's got to be up there near the top. I mean, he's highly acclaimed. He was, uh, I mean, three Academy Awards for best supporting. Although, technically, most of the characters he plays in uh, the films are the same character,
0: just in different context. And well, We've said this before, that usually acting is just different versions of yourself. Tom Hanks is playing a girls' league baseball manager. Tom Hanks is a shipboat captain. Tom Hanks is stranded on a desert island. Tom Hanks is playing Tom Hanks, just in different situations. Well, I mean, John Wayne never really
2: stretched himself a whole lot until he got into a few later films. And uh, Jack Nicholson uh, is a phenomenal actor, and he's done some really good stuff, but a lot of the later films was just Jack being Jack. And so I would have to give him Kudos and say he's probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, supporter or greatest of supporting actors, especially
1: in the Western genre. I enjoy him a lot because he does kind of play the same character. And Rio Bravo, also one of my favorite movies and has been for a long time. Rest of my family, too. Where he's there though, he's a little bit different. He's got the same voice, the same inflection. He's still the crazy old coot. Only in that one, he's a little bit more wackadoodle and he's got a limp. Well, in this one, it's tough when somebody has a very distinctive voice and they're, and they're playing a role that's in the same genre. That, that sort of that makes it kind of tough, right? So in this one, he is a, a responsible human being that other people are, are counting on. He's, he's there for comedic effect. He's a very important member of the team. Well, other than that, he's an extreme right-wing nutjob. So that I like him for that, <laughs> and uh, he really, really hates the commies. Yes. So he and my wife would not get along. But other than that, he uh, he is he is he is that iconic. And if he didn't have that telltale character, where you're right, he is kind of playing himself. Then we never would have seen him in the first place.
0: Well, Dad. You ready to dig more into this film? Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Red River, 1948, is a thrilling Western epic directed by Howard
2: Hawks and starring John Wayne and Montgomery Cliff. The film tells the story of Tom Dunson, Wayne, a tough rancher who leads a cattle drive from Texas to Missouri, along with his adopted son, Matthew Garf, Cliff, as they make their way across the dangerous and unforgiven terrain, tensions rise between Dunson and Garth as Dunson's harsh methods clash with Garth's more humane approach. Matters come to a head when Dunson becomes increasingly tyrannical and even violent, and Garth must decide whether to stay loyal to his adopted father or stand up against him for the sake of their fellow cowboys. With stunning cinematography Capturing the majestic landscapes of the American West, Red River is a classic tale of loyalty, betrayal, and the struggle for survival in a harsh and unforgiving world. Wayne and Cliff both deliver powerful performances, with Wayne in particular showcasing his trademark blend of toughness and vulnerability. A true masterpiece of the Western genre, Red River is a must-see for fans of classic cinema, and anyone who loves a gripping and unforgettable story of adventure and redemption.
0: Thank you. Did you know? This is the film debut of Montgomery Clift. However, this film was shelved for two years, so the first film the public saw of Clift was The Search from 1948, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actor. Did you know? Montgomery Clift was nervous about standing up to John Wayne, but gained confidence when Howard Hawks told him to play his scenes like David against Goliath. He also urged the young actor to underplay in his scenes with Wayne, particularly the scene in which his character challenges Dunson for the first time. Wayne was also not sure Clift could be convincing as a rugged cowboy, but after that first confrontation scene, he told Hawks his doubts were gone and he's gonna be okay. Did you know? There was some concern that John Wayne and Montgomery Clift would not get along, since they were diametrically opposed on all political issues, and both were outspoken on their views. According to legend, they agreed not to discuss politics, and the shooting went smoothly. However, both Wayne and Walter Brennan would not get along with Clift, and they stayed away from the young actor when not filming. Clift Lehner turned down Dean Martin's role in Brio Bravo because he did not want to be reunited with the two actors. Did you know? After seeing John Wayne's performance in the film, directed by rival director Howard Hawks, John Ford is quoted as saying, quote, I never knew the son of a bitch could act. This led to Ford casting Wayne in more complex, multi layered, and dramatic roles in films like She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, The Searchers, and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Did you know? Filmed in 1946, but held for release for two years, in part due to legal problems with Howard Hughes, who claimed it was similar to his The Outlaw from 1943 that Hawks also directed. That is the primary reason that the 127-minute and 133-minute cuts both exist. Did you know? The film spent nearly two years in editing. The first cuts proved to be all wrong, so, in desperation, Howard Hawks reached out to Christian Nebe, his friend and a respected editor, who was working at Warner Brothers editing Fighter Squadron from 1948 at the same time. Neby agreed with Hawks that the film wasn't working, but told him he couldn't help him as he was contracted to Warner's. Hawks got around that by contacting Warner's chief, Jack L. Warner, who was aboard the ocean liner Queen Mary on the way to Europe, and secured his permission to use Neby. So the editor would cut Fighter Squadron by day, and then after hours get to work on this film. Did you know? Writer Borden Chase readily admitted that the storyline was Mutiny on the Bounty with Saddles and Stirrups. Did you know? Howard Hawks was distressed by what he considered John Ireland's unprofessional and lecherous behavior during filming, which were partially due to the actor's alcoholism. This contributed to Ireland's part, Cherry Valance, being drastically reduced in the finished film. However, others on the film, notably writer Borden Chase, have said that Hawks' main problem with Ireland was that they were both competing for the affections of Joanne Drew, and Hawks found himself on the losing end, and took out his resentment at the loss of Ireland. Ireland and Drew were married a year later. Hawks later called Chase an idiot, a heavy drinker and a philanderer who didn't know what he was talking about, adding that the real reason he cut Ireland's scenes was because the actor was always getting drunk stoned on marijuana, and losing his hat and gun. Did you know? The theme song, Settle Down, was later adapted by the score's author, Dimitri Tiamkin, and sung by Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson under the title My Rifle, My Pony, and Me in Rio Bravo from 1959, another John Wayne Western directed by Howard Hawks. And with that, we will take our first break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are discussing the 1993 thriller The Fugitive, directed by Andrew Davis, screenplayed by Jeb Stewart and David Tuey, starring Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. That leads us to Best Performance. Dad, who do you have down? I have
2: actually... uh... Montgomery Cliff, I thought uh, his performance in this was very subtle and underplayed and in comparison to everything around him uh, was much more layered and interesting. So I picked Cliff for that reason because he ran counter to the, I don't know, the testosterone uh, driven film for the most
0: part. Well, I think one of the reasons that I gravitated towards his character as opposed to Wayne's is that he's kind of the protagonist, especially after that opening part, maybe after the first 15 minutes, and Wayne kind of becomes the antagonist. And so I think you're led to eventually side with him in a way that you aren't with Wayne's character. So that's why I ended up probably giving him my best performance, even though I agree with you, there's just a calming presence, a demeanor, a certain level of understanding and wisdom beyond his years that's contained within his character. And I think he depicts a much more rational, calmer brand of leadership than Wayne does or Dunson, I guess, is the character name. And so ultimately it goes to him, even though I went with Wayne as my secondary.
1: I pick Montgomery Cliff as well because I didn't feel at any point in time he was acting. He was that, that person. He wasn't giving a performance. Nobody told him that this wasn't real. So therefore he didn't he didn't have to perform. That's kind of what it felt like, as everybody else is an actor and they're acting. He almost didn't even have to to try. Just maybe because he's that good. Or or just the, the fact that he fit so well into that? Because it seemed to be something that he enjoyed doing.
0: He certainly had a natural ability that I think was beyond most of his colleagues, as you kind of alluded to there. Wayne, you could tell when he was trying to force it at times. Like the scene where he's going to hang the two guys or the deserters, that felt a little more him dialing it up a bit, as opposed to Clift, who always just exuded a certain power and presence with whatever he did. And in this movie, he just needs to be the calm head. And he always is.
1: In every John Wayne movie, he has things that he does. When he's holding a drink, and you can tell by the way he's holding it, if he's about to toss that drink, or he's about to throw a cup, or he's about to draw a gun or slam a door, almost like you're watching a boxer. There's all these tells, and he does it exactly the same way, and he did it the same way in The Shootist as he did in The Stagecoach. So it's it's one of those things, because he says, this is what I have to do, this is the scene, these are the actions I'm going to take, almost as if he's over-exaggerating everything just a little, like he was a stage actor, and everybody's got to see it. Well, that's still that's that's happening, but but in front of the camera, while everybody else, like Montgomery Cliff, that that was that was something that I I notice about some of the younger actors that started to come out around that time, is they grew up around movies, while some of the more older, more established actors, they didn't, you know, they were there when they were first being made. So their experience with acting is on the stage, and everything is, is a little overemphasized. So the understatement, I think, in Montgomery Cliff is uh, one of the first times that you really see that in, in a Western. I mentioned before
0: that Wayne is my best supporting or best secondary performance, though, and part of that has to do with this felt less of a movie star role for him, He had to be a lot more vulnerable. He had to be a lot more emotional. He had to carry a certain accessibility about him that he didn't seem to have in the early portion of his career. He seemed much more invincible in things like Stagecoach than he did in this movie. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that he's playing a much more aged character in comparison even though there's only nine years apart and he plays kind of about a younger guy by the time we get to Liberty Valance, although he and Jimmy Stewart playing guys in their forties when they're in their like fifties was, it was considerable. But regardless, I, I still think there was something to be said when John Forbes takes notice. I never knew the son of a bitch could act. Did any, either of you not have Wayne
1: as your secondary? I don't. I do. I picked him because he had to be a lot of different people in this movie. He had to be the boss. He had to be a father. He had to be a victim. He uh, had to be the bad guy. And uh, then he had to end. He didn't have to end, but he ended where he, he started. All of those things that he had to be in between. And every time he had to change personalities, I thought that, he, as an actor, was able to to change to sort of fit that role. Like, whatever emotions he was supposed to be feeling, he was able to portray them, while every other emotion in every other movie is just called John Wayne. Yeah, I suppose
0: he's kind of one note in Rio Bravo, which is, I'm the heroic sheriff. The,
2: uh, The only thing in Rio Bravo is... He has to also be a little vulnerable because he doesn't know how to handle Angie Dickinson. But did really anybody know how to handle Angie Dickinson? Well, Burt Bacharach did at least for about 10 years. You said you didn't have Wayne as your secondary? No, I didn't. I had Howard Hawks. And when you think about the fact that he had to coordinate camera shots, he had to handle a stampede, he had multiple actors who he had to have close-ups, and cuts, and and such, at various times. He had to have the right camera angle to get reaction shots with the cowboys standing behind the principal characters. He had, there was an issue of pacing, cinematography. There was just so much here for him to do. I had to give him my best secondary performance just because he had a huge job to get this film made. And as far as my most charismatic, that's where I had John Wayne. Because John Wayne just always had the ability to fill a screen no matter what. You could just come in on a, on a
0: close-up of Wayne and boom, he's the star. Yeah, there are certain people that are just stars no matter what they do. To a degree, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, Wayne. You know, even... Nicholson is kind of outsized for everything he does that's why he's such a great supporting role character because he can win every scene that he's a part of even if you're against another tremendously charismatic lead like
1: Tom Cruise i for, I already forgot his name the guy that plays the cook oh um Walter Brennan Walter Brennan the thing was with him in this movie Everybody else, I kind of look at him as a person, and I either either empathize with them, or I don't, and I can see sort of this. But but he is is a very he really is kind of a father fatherly figure. He's an old seasoned man, and when uh, whenever he says something or invokes an emotion, it's kind of like, yeah, he's he's dad basically. So if he's upset, something is wrong. He's not overreacting to anything. He's uh he's he's probably right. So when uh he takes off with uh with Garth uh for the rest of the cattle drive you just feel that any decision that he makes he's making the right decision because he he is the he's 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 a wise man. He's he's dad and grandpa all rolled into one Uh, in a good way, though. And you never second-guess anything that he has to say. Whatever his opinion is, that's probably correct.
0: Well, I think he's charismatic for a couple of reasons. You mentioned before that he's less comedic in this role, and he is, but he still has a comedic effect when dealing with his teeth and his interactions with Quo, which I, I actually think are a very interesting part of the film. That being said you also mention he's kind of the elder statesman of the entire movie. He's the guy with the ultimate wisdom. And for everything that Dunson is to Garth, he is to Dunson. So there becomes a generational lineage of, of the patriarchy that is kind of passed down through that. So I do think it is significant when Dunson basically tells him to go with Garth. I think in a way he was kind of giving his level of permission for Garth to continue on, even though he's going to hunt him down. There's kind of in the back of your mind, if he's sending his own kind of father figure, it's for one of two reasons. One, he doesn't want to hear the voice of reason. He just wants to stay angry. Or he's giving a certain level of permission for this to happen, even though he's not going to be there. And I would tend to think it's actually part of the latter. I went with uh, Joanne Drew on this one for Most Charismatic, who plays Tess. I thought she had a very difficult role because she's got to swoop in, basically, for, what, the last 45 minutes of a two-hour and 15-minute movie and be likable and also become kind of the plot solution of the end. She introduces the way that they can resolve the plot without somebody having to die, or that it becomes somewhat of a tragedy. She points out that they actually do love each other. And she's got to have a certain amount of resonance within the short amount of time that she's on screen for you to believe that she's capable of pointing out these two are being idiots. So that's why I went with her. Okay. Let's move to best scene. I have nominated The Cold Open, which is Wayne and his girl and the unfortunate tragedy that befalls that. I then have Dunson Settles in Texas, so kind of the standoff with the guy south of the border. Poker, which is the scene between Quo and Groot where he loses his teeth. I have Stampede. I then have The Revolt, which is Garth turning on Dunson. I have The Indian Attack where they're encircling the, I don't know what type of traveling caravan it was of women and gambling, but you you understand what I mean if you've seen the movie. I then have the scene between Matt and Tess, kind of when they accept that they're meant for each other. I have Abilene when they first arrive, and then I have the fist fight at the end. Are there any particular pieces of this that you'd also like to add on to that list? It's not
2: continuous, but the scene where she then meets Dunson. Okay, yeah, that's a good one. I missed that one. And I really consider that more of a continuation of the scene between Matt
0: and Tess. Well, I take it as actually a little bit of a different scene, if I if I might, only from the standpoint that she has to take a very different tone and tact with him, because he doesn't know that she knows who he is and all this back information. So he's kind of being filled in at the same time, but they're coming to a understanding of each other. It's kind of like meeting your potential father-in-law for the first time. Yeah. Keith, anything you needed to add? It's like, what was it like to meet me for the first time?
1: There's the person.
0: Okay. So out of these, what is the best scene? Oh, it's, it's, it's Quo
1: and Groot with the teeth. So the poker scene? Oh, absolutely. It's just, it was hilarious just because it's just so funny. And and it's just, it's so absurd. And it couldn't have been in the movie at all. And the movie wouldn't have lost anything for it. But it gained so much just because it was there. It was hilarious. That's, that was just my favorite. That was, yeah. There were a lot of moments in this movie where I was I was paying attention to it, and I, I had to keep stopping my hand from reaching for my phone. But during his segments and the camp segments, especially that one, I was into it. I'm like, "Yep, that's this is this is why I'm sitting here. This is a damn good movie."
0: You know exactly what's going to happen in that scene, and it doesn't matter. It's still enjoyable regardless. Yeah. Dad, what's the best scene for you? The stampede.
2: There's just so much action. There's so many camera shots. There's so much acting that has to be done at various points by so many of the different character actors and by the leads. It's just, it, it was breathtaking in the scope that was associated with it. So that, to me, is the best scene. It's the one that stands out in my mind, although it's not my most indelible moment.
0: I would probably agree with you that the stampede from a technical Marvel was probably the best as far as that goes, but I'm going to choose to highlight something else, a scene that kind of stuck out to me for an oddly different reason. And it's the scene where they arrive at Abilene for the first time and they're greeted by everybody. They pull over the train conductor and he's, we've been waiting for you. And they make this entire relationship in the span of maybe five minutes where they somehow Abilene being there is the savior for the Cowboys and their drive. But they seem also like the savior bringing that level of cattle to Abilene. And so given all the tension that's been moving on throughout the rest of the film, battling Indians, battling bad weather, battling, you know, all of the conditions that they've had to go through to this point, the stampede, etc. That moment of levity where that breaks a lot of the tension before the final ending, I thought was a really remarkable scene that just stuck out for me. By the way, I did the
2: calculation if, from the film itself, the value that they paid for the cattle. If you were to take that from, I believe it was 1870... 5 or 78, something like that. If you were to transport that into today's dollars, he was paid just under $3 billion for that that cattle. It's a lot of money. Yeah. So it's no wonder Dunstan was an asshole through most of it.
0: This was his future. From going broke to being a billionaire? Yeah. And he didn't have to buy Twitter to do it. So Abilene's also my probably my favorite scene again for what I mentioned
1: before. Favorite scenes for either of you? I'm picking the same one. It's not necessarily a scene, it's the sequence of scenes, but when they got to the train, I was nervous when that scene came up because they're crossing a railroad track with all these cattle. And what happens in the at the at the head of the uh the herd? Whoever it is that's driving, they obviously they got an idea of the obstacles that they have to choose and kind of duck and weave and maneuver that that head of that herd so that it's going where they want it to go. When you hit railroad tracks, it's sort of like an oh shit situation because you got to look left, you got to look right, and yeah, there's no train. But this is a big herd, so when they're yelling about a train. I didn't really understand what was going on. The cameras that are showing the train are towards the back of the herd. And all I'm thinking about is a quarter of it has already passed. That train is about to kill a lot of cows. It is about to cut this herd in half and possibly cause another stampede. And I got nervous. And then when I saw the train slowing down and then everybody got excited and then I realized that they were getting close to Abilene, and the conversation, so on and so forth. Because yeah, it was it was sort of closure in the back of your mind. You know that Wayne is coming back. It's it's the end, but then there is that that I don't really know what to call it that unresolved issue that you're waiting to see how exactly it's going to manifest. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm going to say coming into Abilene. For me, uh, my favorite scene, and I, 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 I indicated,
2: I, I consider them kind of together, but it's Matt meeting Tess and then Tess meeting Dunson. Um, because that's kind of the crux, the turning point of the film. It turns both men, Matt and Dunson, from being individuals who really... Only know each other superficially as men, to having more of an under deeper understanding about each other and what their relationship is, and of course it takes a woman to point out the relationship factor, and so that's why I just I think that 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 plays very well, especially within the context of a very testosterone driven film.
0: Most indelible moment for me is the ending in the fist fight. It was the first thing that I thought of when I'm like, oh, this is coming back up on the schedule from the first time that I'd seen it. It's kind of a memorable ending, even though it feels a little deflating. I don't think it, it's, it's quite the catharsis that you need as the audience, but that's partially probably because they changed the ending.
1: I, I chose when uh, he's drawing his brand in the sand. towards the beginning of the movie where that's going to be the, the symbol of everything that he's working towards and that everything that he's going to be indefinitely. And then of course, in the end the brand changes, but it was just something about how he was excited and he was creating a thing. And then sort of the, the point of the movie is that the thing that he worked so hard to build is collapsing, and that changed him. And I just, I don't know. I just kept thinking about his brand, the thing that he wanted to build, and it's dying, and that's what made him who he is. I don't know. I just, I just, I keep thinking about his brand, him drawing it. I'll always remember this movie because of that. For me, it was the the the. Uh...
2: The fight scene. Again, you, for the reason you pointed out. that's The minute I we thought about that, that's the scene that came back in my mind immediately.
0: Well, that looks like a good spot to take our second break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley Rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that has every graded movie... We've ever discussed on the show. There's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to Ronnie Duncan slash podcast and find it as the top entry on the greatest movie of all time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 156 movies we've graded. And we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? I think this might be the first time. No, we don't, thankfully. I think it might be the second or third, to be honest. But it's a remarkable week because it's been quite some time since we've had no one to recognize. And so we appreciate the fact that while it does give us an opportunity to recognize people that we didn't necessarily know in life, we still get to enjoy the fruits of their labor while they're here. So let's move to best, funniest lines. First one up for me, Mr. Melville. There's three times in a man's life when he has the right to yell at the moon, when he marries, when his children come, and, and when he finishes a job he had to be crazy to start.
2: Dunson, we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry
1: nothing out. I think... I forgot the character's name. Cliff's character. Matt. Matt. When uh when he turns and at the end after the fight and says Party on Wayne and then he turns and says Party on Garth That was and then black screen and that was probably it I, I don't know. I didn't I didn't pick one. Okay. I have a few more here.
0: Nadine Groot never liked seeing strangers. Maybe it's because no stranger ever good newsed me. Dunson, Cherry
2: was right. You're soft, and you should have let them kill me, because I'm going to kill you. I'll catch up with you. I don't know when, but I'll catch up. Every time you turn around, expect to see me, because one time you'll turn around, and I'll be there.
0: I'm going to kill you, Matt. Dunson, I don't like quitters, especially when they're not good enough to finish what they start. Cherry,
2: there are only two things more beautiful than a gun. A Swiss watch or a
0: woman from anywhere. Ever had a good Swiss watch? Sims Reeves, well, I don't like to see things going good or bad. I like them in between. Cherry, you're fast for that
2: gun, Matt. Awful fast. But your heart's soft, too soft. Might get you hurt someday. Matt, could be... I wouldn't count on it.
0: Matt, how did you know when he was going to draw? Dunson. By watching his eyes. Remember that. I'm out. As am I. So let's move to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. I think I can just go. I think this movie has a legacy within the industry, but is much more muted among the public, which tends to be a lot of the movies we discuss on the show. The fact that I think among some critics and some organizations, so the AFI has recognized this. We talked about Roger Ebert. I'm sure that you could find a few others that put this, you know, at least in the top 20 of Westerns. I think that's fair to say. I don't think it'll ever be everyone's favorite. I'm not sure it would necessarily be in everyone's top five. Westerns certainly vary by degree of who you appreciate more and the level of violence you want in your Western. And so, like Peck and Paw or Leone are more attractive to some people than Hawks and Ford. But this still has at least a good recognition as one of the better John Wayne Western films. It's got a recognizable couple of stars in Brennan and Clift. And as a result of whatever Clift was going to go on to do, the fact that this was kind of his first movie and not only did he hold his own, we all voted him as best performance, I think raises the bar just slightly for me. I'm going to go four for legacy on the industry. However, if you said red river, I don't think the majority of people, even in this country would necessarily think of the movie first. And so That leads me to believe that this is a much more forgotten John Wayne film. It doesn't have the name recognition of The Searchers or Stagecoach or Rio Bravo or even The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which have much more unique names. I don't think that if you describe the plot that a lot of people have necessarily seen this. But because it's a John Wayne film, I think that that gives this a chance of being seen more than other films. And given that it's a John Wayne film, it's a film that may be on other people's list to eventually watch, kind of like just about any other John Wayne film on my list. Eventually, I would like to get to most, if not all of his films, because it's John Wayne and to know him and to know his roles and his performances is to kind of know Hollywood of the era. So I went with a 2.5, which may be a little bit kinder than I, I otherwise would be from a public standpoint here for a 6.5 overall. Dad, will let you go here. It was in the
2: AFI 10 Best Westerns and was given uh, credit for the National Film Registry. It did launch Montgomery Clift's career. So from an industry perspective, I went with a 4 also but this is a film that most people don't remember or they've seen it, but they didn't remember what it was called or what it was about. It doesn't resonate. It's not something that people think about often. So it's a kind of a forgotten film. So from the public, I went with a 1.5 for a 5.5 5
1: overall. When uh, I was thinking about this, when it comes to legacy within the industry, There were so many things in the industry that happened because of this movie, including the start of of John Wayne's career. I mean, to me, it sort of defines making movies in that point in time. That was probably the best that Hollywood could do in 1946, even though it came out in 1948. So I was going to give it 4.5 for Legacy, and then when it came to the public, how the public perceives its legacy, I, I said a one, literally a one, because I forgot all about this movie, and I'm a big John Wayne fan. I always have been. Guy hates commies more than I do. And I don't remember a time in which I didn't have a series of John Wayne movies that were on a list for me to watch, regardless of whether or not I had seen them. I watched Real Bravo every year. I forgot this movie existed. The only reason I watched it was because we were doing this episode. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have seen it again in who knows how long. And I think a lot of what you said about the fact that the only reason that this movie is going to come back up again is because John Wayne is in it is absolutely true. I don't think that if he weren't in it that anybody would really ever see it except for Western aficionados or people that still go to Walmart and buy box sets. You know, oh, it's got a wagon on it, and it's only $49.95. I'll take it. It would have been in there. Maybe it is. I don't know. And it's not really referenced or anything anymore, but here's here's the I, I think maybe here's the thing when I said that that, that was the best you could do in nineteen forty-six. Not oh is that the best you could no, it was that good. But I think that the lessons learned in making that movie and the way that they probably saw, did learn, and develop uh in the industry while doing that movie probably manifested or found their way into a lot of other films that who knows? They may be still using today. The, the, there's no way to know. So, on, let's see here. I gave it a 1 and a 4, so that's...
0: You had a 4.5 and a 1, so that was 5.5. 5.
1: Okay, so 5.5. 5.
0: So the average is 5.83. Which seems fair, given where you guys were at. I probably could afford to drop mine down a little bit, but I'll stand on my hill a little on the public perception. Yeah, I think that's fair. Impact Significance, I think this is a much bigger movie in the moment. It's hard for us to go back to 1948, but given that there were maybe only a handful of films that were truly successful, because everything was a one-theater film, or a one-film theater, to be the second biggest movie of the year, it had to be somewhat popular. Now, this didn't get a lot of awards attention. In fact, it got, I think, no nominations at all in a rather weak year, if you ask me, with Hamlet eventually winning, even though we discussed one of the better awards film movies a couple of weeks ago in The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which I adore. I just don't necessarily see this as a five of the time from an industry standpoint, even though it introduces us to Montgomery Clift, who would go on to obviously do From Here to Eternity and A Place in the Sun in the next five years, both outstanding movies that received a lot of awards attention. And is this something that really furthered John Wayne's career? If you take it from the standpoint that John Ford was willing to give him more layered parts, maybe, but John Wayne also continued to be John Wayne for the next however many years. So it's not like it it was a a big film that propped him up that much further. He was already John Wayne by that point. So it leads me kind of more to a four. It's not going to be at the peak, but it's, you know, in a decent category given its prowess. From an audience standpoint, though, second biggest film of that year. Overall, fairly well-received critical praise. I'm going to go for a 4.5 for an 8.5 overall. It just
2: got a couple of Academy Awards. I think there were three nominations, I think. I didn't see any nominations for this film. There were three, I believe. You have a Google machine. I'm doing it now. You have to look, you have to go to IMDb.
0: Johnny Belinda, Joan of Arc, Luck of the Irish, Hamlet, Key Largo. Treasure this year, Mondray, Johnny Belinda, Snake Pit, The Search, Sitting Pretty, Red Shoes, Foreign Affair, those are live action shorts, Score, Short Subject, Scoring of a Musical Picture, Best Original Song, Art Direction, Sound Recording, Cinematography, it does not have a single award. Oh, excuse me. It has one for film editing. It's just at the bottom. It got two nominations.
2: One was for Best Writing Motion Picture Story for Borden Chase and Film Editing for Christian Nyby. Okay. Anyway, so going back, it only had two Academy Award nominations, it helped propel Cliff's career. He did a series of films that were very successful within that five-year period. So I gave it a couple of marks up for that, or give it a mark up for that. So I went from the industry of a 3.5 because it was well-received, but I don't think it was as received as critically as other films. And from a public standpoint, I went with a 4.5 simply because it was very popular. So that gives me a eight overall.
1: I didn't research this much at all. I didn't look to see what the impact of the movie was or what what how it was perceived at the time. I scrolled through and looked to see what awards it may or may not have won or awards people may or may not have won. Didn't really see too, too much. Uh, but I didn't look into... Uh, It's impact and significance all that high. But, however, for some of the reasons that we talked about before, if you make a good movie in a genre, then it almost gives other people license and permission to make more movies in that genre. Uh, Westerns had been popular, but hadn't been beat to death yet. So I was going to give it a four just based on uh, the how the public perceived its, its legacy, because it helped make... The, well, that was one of the movies that helped make the cowboy cool. Like, it's it, it, not the first cowboy movie, but it's the first great cowboy movie that I can think of. Uh, legacy Within the Industry, I gave it a 2, just because I had to give it a number, and there's only five of them to choose from. And I picked the second one of those. So that puts me at a six. That is a 7.5 average between the three of us.
0: Novelty. I have to admit, I'm not going to go very high on this. This had issues due to the endings closeness to a previous Howard Hawks movie that he was being sued for by Howard Hughes. The author also admits to a genre ripoff of mutiny on the bounty and if there are points for this one, they're probably in the execution of the movie. As I, you know, I often try and exercise that point of view. I think Clift is always spectacular. Wayne was noted for being more of an actor than a movie star for the role. And Hawks was trying his first Western. So I'll give it a couple of points that I maybe otherwise wouldn't.
1: But I'm going to go with a three. Wow. I know. There's more numbers involved. I thought we all ran out of numbers here. I'm on to I'm on to novelty down here. That's what we're on. I'm gonna go with a four, just because it was good enough to kind of keep that cowboy genre going, because it was throwing it was interjecting comedy in in just the right way in a cowboy movie. Don't don't get me started on the historical perspective of this, because. I just the the number of things that are so very wrong that they just have no excuse are just, I could go on, but I don't know. I'm sticking with a four. Well, I'm a little surprised
2: with both of you. Usually I'm the one with the lower numbers on novelty. I went with a seven on this. Yeah. This was one of many Westerns, but this is the, this Western took a turn from what most of the Westerns were. Most of the Westerns were just superficial characters running around shooting and trying to rope cattle and fighting and, you know, drinking whiskey in the bar. This actually had some layer to it where there there were characters with some depth. And I think this started the whole trend in the, the 50s that really they were more realistic, more human characters and character studies than anything. Because most of John Wayne's westerns were just basically cookie cutter. He came in, he fires, he shoots, he beats up the bad guy. They're done. Uh, He rides off into the sunset, the the Republic era. I'm not sure I take stagecoach that way. No, but even there, the characters are not that well developed. This is at least something unique as far as that goes, where there's more character development at least of the primary characters. So, I mean, I can, taking into account yours, I'll go a half a point lower at 6.5, but I'm not going any lower than that because I think this film kind of redefines Westerns to some extent. Stick to your guns.
0: Then fine, damn it. Seven. Good, because I had already done the math. <laughs> it was a 4.67 average between the three of us. All right, classicness. I'll hand this over to you, Dad.
2: Wow, I mean, I understand this was common at the time, but the portrayal of uh, Indians and or Native Americans not real pleasant. Even the uh, the the actor who was in the film as the assistant cook, he basically, oh, oh, grunt, ooh. I mean, it just overplayed it and it just was really bad. And the way most of the women were portrayed as being prostitutes <laughs> or or dance hall girls as they would like to call them, which we knew exactly what that meant. It, it yeah. And again, it it um It represents a period of American history where the the male characters, it's probably close in reality to what they really were, but they were not overly empathetic to anybody but themselves and their same ilk. So just because of this being so classically troped as far as how it portrays women and Indians, I went with a
0: 6.5 for classicness. So it's an interesting point on the dance hall girls. I guess I hadn't considered that portion of it. But let me play a little bit of devil's advocate on the relationship between Quo and Groot. If Groot is supposed to be the patriarchal leader with the ultimate amount of wisdom, the allegedly dumb Indian seems to get the better of him on a regular occasion which I thought was somewhat novel for the time, especially considering how poorly, I would say, Native Americans are portrayed even a few years later in, like, The Searchers, comparatively. I actually give them a little bit of credit for that relationship because he seemingly is outsmarting the white guy in 1948. The other part of this to me, though... I actually thought, despite kind of, and and this is going to come back in remaining questions, I don't understand exactly what drew Tess so powerfully to Matt suddenly. Because it seems like they developed this just intrinsic relationship almost out of thin air. And she's just drawn to him in in a way that doesn't make sense to me in part of the writing. What I will say is is that she has to be the strongest character by the end of the movie to basically knock the two of their heads together and say, you're morons.
2: Well, I guess that's a pretty good point, but I'm sure what was drawn to her and what
0: drew her to him is his big gun. Okay, well, regardless. So, she's the character of reason that saves the two heroes, and even despite some of its maybe not the best versions of uh, some stereotypes of the time. It was a movie of the era in a, in a degree that's also playing up the stereotypes of the Old West. So how much do I really want to give off on some of that? I know that's leading me down a slippery slope for when we get to something like Gone with the Wind and maybe making excuses for, wow, this is the way people really felt in the Old South, but... <laughs> I'm going to go slightly up from my base seven to actually an eight. I I found some redeeming qualities actually in the movie. Do you think you have enough to give a number, Keith?
1: I do. This one, I thought about a fair amount. Um, I don't know about a number. I'll try to come up with one, but that female lead, uh, you're about to tell me her name and her character's name, the one in the end, but don't cause I don't care. Don't. I don't. He's the worst, the worst. As soon as she came on the screen and she started talking in this monotone voice with random inflections, as she's going like this, shooting at the Indians, and like, you're in the middle of a fight for life and death. And this is, oh my God. And then she just kept getting worse. Then she kept getting worse. I'm like, who is she sleeping with that she gets to keep her job? She's even worse than in Rio Bravo. This is Terrible. Maybe they should have let women act back in the 40s, and then we would all remember these movies because they would have been better. Wow. Oh, my God. This is just the worst. So I think one of the reasons why it kind of doesn't age well is because they take a lot of female characters and they box them in when they're, uh, you know, the, the, the dame starts acting up, and they're, calm down, see? <laughs> Going hysterical. And then they just, ah. And then she's in that box. And her eyes are just screaming, can I act, please? But no, not allowed. And then she gives a god-awful performance and takes what was a great movie and made it okay. But Red River is an okay movie because of her. And uh, it's, yeah, that, that is hard. But when you're watching a movie from that era, there's a lot of that. And it's, it's sometimes difficult to swallow. As far as some of the classiness, there is a there is an actor who is in this movie. I do not know his name. He is frequently in John Wayne movies. He's bald. He's tall, kind of skinny. And uh, the way that he speaks is very... I, I don't need to explain to you who he is. You already know who I'm talking about. He is actually a cowboy. He got his start in the movies because he was a cowboy in real life came to california they needed help with the cows and the horses on set at one point in time they uh asked him uh, when he was in the army they asked hey do you uh can you ride roman uh roman style that was the thing he said i sure can jumped on two horses bareback while standing up because they just did that he was that good And he was surrounded by other actual cowboys who they put in the movies and in front of the camera and gave them lines. So some of those guys were real. And obviously, if you remade that movie today, you aren't going to have that. I mean, as soon as your cowboy steps off of his horse, throws a slipper on, goes back to his trailer, throws on his skinny jeans, starts sucking on his latte. I mean, that guy doesn't exist anymore. So there's some authenticity that exists and that is portrayed in this movie because of those people. Uh the fact that they got these giant herds of cows and trampled them around. They were killing animals when they were making these movies and they could give a shit less. It's just a damn cow, right? Well now that would shut the whole movie down. You know, like the like the rust shooting, if that happened back then, they just would have, you know, made a quick hole and replaced them with somebody else. Uh so it it hasn't aged well but it's classic in that what they were doing can't be replicated. So I ended up doing a seven with this, just because I—I I don't know what else to do. I, yeah, for I, I it's a seven. Okay, moving on. Hank Warden—that was the guy's name, by the way. That's it.
2: And uh, he, uh, he had originally been a, uh, a rodeo performer uh, until he had an injury and then <laughs> turned
0: to acting. So that's a 7.17 average between the three of us. Keith, go
1: ahead on rewatchability. Okay, for me, it's going to be a little tougher because it's going to be some of the reasons that I didn't quite mention yet. When they were inventing the Western, they invented a genre. I know when this movie was supposed to have taken place, the Chisholm Trail was already well established. None of the guns that they used in the movie existed. None of the clothing that they wore in the movie existed. There's no such thing as a pant with belt loops. They didn't exist in the 19th century. Okay, There's no such thing as a low-hanging holster. There's no such thing in that time period as a cartridge-firing six-shooter. What they needed was a script supervisor. No, what they need is is someone who actually, somebody who was alive during the time, which half of those people were, that were like, hmm, what clothing, weapons, accessories, saddles, and hats existed when I was a child? You know what, not even going to look it up, just going to create stuff out of nowhere. Let's give this guy a giant hat, and let's put guns everywhere. Oh, duels. Draw. Never happened once, not one time. So it's tough when I'm watching old Westerns, because at some point in time, somebody invented a trope, everybody copied it, and then two years later, somebody invented another one. So then when you when you move forward in time into the 60s, where you all of a sudden have all the bad stereotypes, and there's nothing but a bunch of bad stereotypes in a Western, and then you could just go off, but... They, they, they but the But the people, they think that... The, it's uh, <laughs> a two. A two? It's a two. Okay. Print the
0: legend. Yeah. Go ahead, Dad.
2: To me, it was a little slow at times. The pacing and the camera work were good, but there were times where it just kind of dragged for me, and I kind of like... Uh, kind of a test for me is... is If I look at my watch and go, okay, there's only about 40 minutes left of this, that tells me that there's a problem with the aging of the movie and my rewatchability. I would much rather watch Rio Bravo five times over this, uh, probably 10 times over this. So I went with a five rewatchability simply because it's a good film. It's a solid film. It's an important film. I've seen it now twice. I may never see it again in my life.
1: And, you know, is Rio Bravo a better movie? No, but I've seen it a thousand times, and I'm going to watch it a thousand more. I'll watch this in once again.
2: Well, it's more entertaining. It's more. It's more comical. The music in it was good. That was a nice relief within the film. It
1: brightened it. Yeah, and the costumes are even worse, but somehow I still like it more.
2: Well, and Angie Dickinson was pleasing on the eye.
1: Oh, she's the worst. (laughs) Okay. Every every time she says John T., it just makes me think, you know, maybe I don't like Westerns anymore. All right, so after all those hot takes, I agree with your
0: five, Dad. The movie's slow, it's meandering. It does not involve a lot of great action outside of the stampede scene or maybe the fist fight, which that also hasn't aged particularly well the way it's staged, but it's a fight from 1946, 48, whatever. It's over two hours, and it feels like it's over two hours. This is not one that I feel I need to revisit a lot to glean more out of. It's kind of simple, like we talked about with Hawks. His premises and his execution are very simple stories. We kind of talked about it last week with Bringing a Baby, but like his his Girl Friday or Bringing a Baby in some of his earlier comedy work, those were very quick paced. They're much more comedic. They're entertaining. And they're about 90 minutes. This is not. This was a little bit more challenging. And so it's a little bit more of a slog to get through. I also went for a five. And so that makes the average a 4 between the three of us. For audience score, we had a 76 for Google users and an 87% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.15. So to repeat the categories, we had a 5.83 for legacy, 7.5 for impact significance, a 4.67 for novelty, a 7.17 for classicness, a 4 for rewatchability, and an 8.15 for audience score, giving us a final total of 37.32 and currently placing it on our list between Dodgeball, A True Underdog Story, and Live and Let Die. Okay. Remaining questions. My biggest one, does Cherry die? We see him get shot. We also see John Wayne get shot. And then we immediately move into this fist fight duel between him and Matt. And we have no idea what the outcome for Cherry is.
2: Well, considering your What You Know section, Howard Hawks probably left it that way on
0: purpose, so if there was ever a sequel, he could write them out. I suppose. I mean, I'm I'm not opposed to one way or the other. I just, if you really wanted closure on the rest of it. Eh. Although, what was being sequelized in 1948? I don't know. Just just a random thought. I guess The Thin Man. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, they had serials going at that time, but they weren't feature films.
0: My other question, which we kind of already touched on, but I don't understand the relationship between Tess and Matt and the just magnetron attraction that seems to happen from him saving her, but then, like, them getting into a fight, which also seemingly comes out of nowhere. It's probably the thinnest writing of the entire movie. Yeah,
2: well... I don't know. There's a lot of things. A lot of people that you just kind of go, what is he seeing her or she seeing him? I don't know. I have one. All right. The buyer, Harry Carey Jr.'s character. Why the hell would he sit in a closed room with those two after they'd been on the trail for three months? They had to stink like you wouldn't believe. And he's sitting in a closed room. I'd be
0: going. <laughs> well, personal hygiene and smell weren't nearly as important in, in those days. Um, well, stink is stink. Yeah, but it didn't stink as much because you were used to a lot of bad smells. <laughs> Any other remaining questions? I have none. No, I don't have any. Okay. Well, thank you again for being on with us, Keith. We always enjoy having you.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. And I don't know what we're going to do uh, next time, but this was interesting. I, I'm i glad I did this one, because like I said, otherwise I don't think I would have watched this movie again. And it gave me a lot to to think about. And... Makes me want to watch more Montgomery Clip movies.
0: Well, I can suggest a few. I already mentioned two that I think very highly of him on, but uh, we also did Judgment in Nuremberg last year, where I think he has a pivotal role in that one. He's in a Hitchcock film
2: and uh, that I've never seen, uh, where he plays a priest. Which one is that? Uh, I Confess. Oh,
0: Okay. From I think like you have the DVD. Of that.
2: I know I do. I've never seen it, and I've thought about actually sitting down and watching it. Okay. All right. Final thoughts for the week, Dad. I'm enjoying uh, the marvelous Ms. Maisel, or Mrs. Maisel. Mrs. Uh, Maisel's final season. I like the way they're kind of popping back and forth between more modern and then trying to wrap up the story. So it's been entertaining. I'm looking forward to the ending but I'm also not looking forward to the ending. So I'm enjoying
0: the last quarter of that show of Ted Lasso and of succession simultaneously. I actually think all of them are doing a fairly good job, at least at this point, in my opinion on their final seasons, especially with Ted Lasso's kind of evolved into it's second and third seasons are much different flavors than its first one that really drew everybody in and became kind of the sensation that it, that it was. But I'm still finding that it's it's a good narrative arc for pretty much all of the characters to this point and I think there are only 3 episodes left, so it is the last quarter. Succession, as I mentioned to you the other night, is way better than it should be. It's probably b- way better than any show deserves to be and I'm just glad that I'm around to enjoy it. As far as Barry though, it's the one that I struggle the most to relate to. I understand when I've heard interviews afterward with Bill Hader, kind of what his concept and what he's going for. But it's something that the further on we've gotten where he's been in the primary creator of the show and further away from the influence of Alec Berg early on in the series, the more I've struggled to relate to it or to understand it. I can look at it academically, but that's not really as fun as when there's a character that makes more sense to what it is you understand they're going through. And the longer the show has gone on, the more difficult it's become for me, which is a little disappointing for as much as I really enjoyed the first two seasons.
2: The only thing that would make Succession better would be is if somebody gets sued for sexual harassment in the last episodes.
0: Well, no, they got to be accused then of uh, defamation for telling lies about voting
1: machines.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Because there is an election coming up in the next episode. So, that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. Next week, we are discussing the 1993 thriller, The Fugitive. Directed by Andrew Davis, screenplay by Jeb Stewart and David Tui, starring Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.